A reading from 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendations to you or from you? You yourselves are are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The word of the Lord. Am I loved? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This is the question that John Aldridge puts forth in a a book about growing boys that they need to hear. We could contend it's not just for boys. In the first five to seven years of their life, they need to hear that they are loved unconditionally and irrevocably every day. Lincoln, who was four at the time, I said to him one night, he's my son, I said to him one night, you know that I love you, right? And his response was, yes, Dad, but can you tell me every day so I never forget? There is a longing in us to know that we are irrevocably loved. But the question that comes after that, Eldridge says, is this one. Am I enough? From age five to onwards, till about 12 or 13, a young man, a young boy, starts to experience the need to, to try things, to climb trees, to jump over things, to do these things that would probably do a lot of harm And the question he's wanting to hear, the answer he's wanting to hear the question to is, am I good enough? And so I took this to heart as a dad, and I started speaking to my sons about this, and yeah, go boy, you can do this. You can do this. Yes, I'm here. Go for it. Do it. And on Sunday mornings, my boys and I have man time where we speak about eternal, important life things like... Um, struggle and pain, like sacrifice and what it takes to be a man, like whether Bucky will get his mechanical arm back after the last Avengers movie that came out. But they have these questions, and one time we were dealing with sacrifice and pain, and I said to them, why do you think God lets us go through the pain, the struggle, the loss? that we so often see in life. And in my head, I had a number of different answers. This was the one that came at me from my boys. To show that we are good enough. And in that moment, my heart sank deeply because I heard my own voice in them. 
And I heard myself tell them, you can do this. You're good enough. You have what it takes. And the answer I knew that I was wanting to hear from them was this. To remind us how much we need God and how insufficient we are in ourselves. And I realized that the narrative that I had formed in them was this Western triumphalist narrative. You're good, you're the best. That's not all bad. I'm not going to go to them and say, you suck, remember that. (laughs) But that's become their dominant narrative. And I realized, wait a minute, I have left part of their education as boys out. Am I good enough? Connected with this is the preceding question, which is, what is the meaning of life? What am I here for? And whatever answer you get to that question, the deep, deep questions of meaning, the next question is, am I good enough to do that? And so as we look at this question of, am I good enough, we get this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And the background to this is that Paul had been a father to these people. Paul had spoken to them, taught them, brought them into the kingdom of life and hope and joy. And then he hears from various sources from them that these other people have come and started speaking to them truths that are no truth at all. Trying to seduce them away from the life that God had given them into a a life of law again, a life of struggle and pain and living the old way, not the new way that that Jesus had, had ushered in. And so what used to happen is you needed to have, uh, as a minister, whatever task you had in those days, whether you are sent by the king to do something, whether you've got a job to do, you've, you had to have something on your person that would prove who you are and that you're competent to do what you're supposed to do. And so this is where this idea of letters of commendation come from that he's talking about. Uh, Corinthians, uh, this whole letter is riddled with it, not just in this part. Throughout of it, it talks about these letters of commendation because these people that came into the church's presence came with letters of commendation. And because they came with letters, a few things happened. Firstly, they gained access to this community. The letter of commendation, whatever it looked like, we're not exactly sure, gave them access and the church in Corinth said, okay, speak to us. Because of this, we trust you. Now, our world does not work too differently. Let me show you this little thing right here. This is very heavy. This is an award that a friend of ours won at the Cannes Advertising Festival. It is the highest award that I know of. I may be ignorant. It is the highest award that you can win in advertising. It is a Grand Prix Lion for innovation. And he won it. So after he won it, he was walking through the streets with this in his hand, as you do. Anybody run the Brooklyn half? Come on, is your medal on your, yeah? Anyone? Anyone run the half? Yes! Are you wearing your medal? Did you finish? Just kidding, just kidding. Um, And he's walking with this down the street into a a party that was happening, but only for VIP guests. 
and or he had on his bag and or whatever, and he had this lanyard on that he was attending this conference. And as he got there with the people he was with, he was not allowed to go into the party because his lanyard wasn't the, the right color, didn't say the right thing. He did not have the letter, the access to that thing. And as he stood there, as he should, he just said, well, I, I, I just got this. Does this help? And the doors opened wide and they welcomed him in. In our day, in our age, we carry around letters, things, acclamations, achievements that give us access into places that that create some kind of a gap, a distance. It gives us access that others may not have. It doesn't only give us access, but it affirms our importance. It affirms that we are good enough. I am good enough to be included in the crowd that's included in this party. I'm good enough to enter in and to be there. And so, not unlike this, these people brought these letters that had seals of approval that gave them access to the church. But secondly, they didn't just bring letters. They also, when they left, they asked for letters from the church for the next place they were going to. And so they were building up their reputation, building up their credentials, as it were, for the sake of their career path, if we can call it that. It proves their adequacy. Now, David Brooks says this in a, in a book he wrote, Road to Character, that I would highly recommend reading. He does this study about our current situation, and there's some phenomenal things that he picks up in the study. This is just one of them. He says, as I looked around popular culture... I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You are special. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. Movies from Pixar, Disney are constantly telling children how wonderful they are. Commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Follow your passion. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are great. This is the gospel of self-trust. Now again, the greatest lies have some truth in them. So again, the opposite of this is not, you suck. That's not the message we need to preach. But this message that David Brooks highlights here in culture, he says he found it even in church. Just the teachings of, you're amazing, you can do this. Hold on to that self-confidence. Social media is the exact replication of these letters that we carry around with us in Corinth. Go look at who follows you, who affirms your comments, who, who responds and retweets and posts your stuff on their social media. It's all about how we get affirmed and how we promote our own brand. The American dream is this freedom to do What we want, in essence, it's been interpreted, but that's not what it used to be. True freedom is not being able or competent, the same word as is being used in this text. Competent to do what you want. It is having the ability to do what you ought to do as defined by something outside of you. Something far higher, something far more free. 
And so the question remains, am I good enough? And when we are faced with that question, we do one of two things possibly, maybe more. Two things I'd highlight. One, we lower the bar of life significantly to feel like we are good enough. And so we pursue these things, uh, these, these tiny little dreams, like being the best in your industry. Now those are massive dreams, those are massive things that we all pursue after, but they have, they could have no eternal value, no larger value than the very value that we have put into it. So we pursue these things and we say, I'm just gonna achieve that, and then you know what? Ask artists, ask people who've achieved these great things. Many of them, if they're honest, they say this, man, we got there and we, we ended up sitting going, is this it? Is this, this is all there is to it? Charlie Mackesy, who's a, a world-renowned artist, his, his latest installation was an installation he did with Nelson Mandela. Uh, he's also famed for uh, being in a bathtub uh, being in a bathtub naked with bear grills, rowing down the Thames River through London. Just a few of, of his accomplishments. Um, but he's, he's this world-renowned artist, and he says this. He was sitting on, he was out with friends somewhere uh, around the world, and his, his other friend, who's also a world-acclaimed artist, came at three o'clock in the morning, sat on his bed, sitting with him, saying, Charlie, Charlie, wake up. And Charlie's like, man, what's happening? And he said, is this it? Is this all there is? We've, we've gotten everything we want. We, want. we have the fame. We have all the money we, want, we can ever spend in our lives. Is this it? So we lower the bar to these dreams that are attainable, and then once they're attained, they never bring satisfaction. Like the fox in Aesop's fable who tries to reach for the grapes and can't reach the grapes and then because he can't reach the grapes, he turns around and he says, they must have been sour anyway. Or there's a little different ending to the story where he actually reaches the grapes and goes, oh man, is this really what I was after? The second thing we do is we live in perpetual anxiety of our own insufficiency. We wake up every morning thinking, man, am I going to make it through? Am I going to be enough in my job today? Am I going to be enough to my kids and my wife and my family today? I don't know that I am enough, and that anxiety overcomes us. In the words of our cultural prophets, the 1975, if I am lost, then how can I find myself? We sit with a conundrum that we can't answer ourselves and we need outside help and God gives us crises and loss and pain and struggle to somehow wake us up to the reality that we cannot fix ourselves. And my voice and my son's ears were, you're good enough, you can do this. So this is a picture that Malachi drew. Well, before we get to that picture, you'll see it now. You already saw it. The three things that the text highlights in this path to the new reality, there's an old reality where we, where we deal in letters of commendation and we need these things to prove ourselves and we, we hold our lives up by these external constructs. There's three things he says that in this text that leads us to the freedom away from this old reality to live in a new reality that Jesus 
uh, ushered us into. The first is confidence through Christ to God compared to self-confidence. Cue the picture. Malachi drew this picture when he was about five. And he drew this and he said in the top right-hand corner, Dad gives me courage to jump over an arrow. Because he was a ninja and he knew and he believed he was a ninja at the time. He also believed I was the ninja. I'm the big ninja in the background with the eye, with just my head fits into the picture. But what was really amazing was this came after we've had, we had some moments of fear and trembling in a, in a uh, playground where he couldn't quite do what he wanted to do and he wanted me close. And I stepped close, ready to catch him. And he, he knew that he, was pro- he thought he was probably gonna fail and dad's gonna catch. But it made him take a chance And when he jumped, he actually made it. And he drew this later on saying, dad gives me courage to jump over an arrow. He found his source of confidence outside of his own ability. Now, self-confidence, we're warned in verse five of this text, it says, not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent. I don't think we New Yorkers live well in this. I think this is a real struggle for us. And I say that humbly because it's a struggle for me. The irony of self-confidence, which is the old reality, the irony of it is that God as the creator gave us the very abilities that we have confidence in. And not just that, it says this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, for who makes, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? How I live my life is I look at what I'm good at, I look at the victories in my life, and instead of going, God, you have been gracious to me, you have helped me, thank you, I long for more and I need you today again. I look at myself and I look at these things and I say, I did that so I can do that. Again, half-truths. If you look at the story of David, if you've ever heard the story he is called up to fight or he's called up to take his brother some food and then he gets to the battlefield where the Israelites are fighting and this Philistine, Goliath, massive guy, stands there and intimidates the armies. Send your best soldier to come and fight me. And David gets up and he speaks to Saul and he says this, I've killed the lion, I've killed the bear. In other words, he's got some things behind his name. And he's speaking to people who understand that language. But then when he stands in front of Goliath, it's very interesting what he says. He says, you come to me with your shield and your spear. In other words, you come with your strength. You come with that which you hold on to, that which has given you victories in the past. You come with all that. He didn't say to Goliath, hey man, I killed a bear once. He didn't do that with Goliath. He said, I come to you in the name of my God. 
And what he did in that moment was he chose not to play Goliath's game. He chose to change the reality, bring in a whole new reality by which to live. The old reality is crushing. It it says we have to be sufficient in ourselves. And it makes us anxious. It either makes us just go after the little foxes that we know we can conquer, or it makes us completely anxious saying, how am I going to face this thing? It's impossible. And Jesus ushers in the new reality that Paul is asking us to live in. So what do we do with confidence then? Because certainly we have to have confidence in our abilities as we're out in the marketplace, as we live our lives. Dallas Willard says this. It's, it's a really kind of nuanced little thing to, to catch. But he says, work hard. Do your best. But do not trust in your best. Work hard. Do all of those things, but don't trust in those things. Trust in God. What are you leaning on day after day when this world asks you this question? Am I good enough? So the second thing he says in this text in verse 6 is that we are competent for ministers to be ministers of a new covenant who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And in that, he's saying, there is a new reality. And if you want to live according to the old reality, you have to live by those rules. And we live in the new reality by God through Christ, as as we just read. But we also live in the old reality because that's how the world around us works. And so we have to, day after day, perpetually negotiate the tension between, man, yes, we have to work hard, we have to be good, we have to actually do what God has put inside of us and redeem that for Him, but we have to live in the new reality knowing that God has given us everything we have and everything we need. And that tension is hard, and our competence then, because of that, comes from the Spirit. And it says about the Spirit that He is the seal, the deposit, guaranteeing that which is to come. So as we're in a series called The Spirit Gives Life, we started with Pentecost last week. This week we're talking about how the Spirit indwells our own hearts, how we don't need these external things to affirm us, but we have everything we need in God to do what He has called us to do we hear that the Spirit of God gives us what we need. The Spirit affirms us as adopted children of God, Romans 8 says. The Spirit of adoption comes and draws us into the family of God. The difference between a servant and a son is remarkable. The servant has to put himself in just to survive, just to get his money, just to to get by. The son does the work joyfully because he knows it's all his by the Father's grace. And so when the son is asked, hey, can you go and mow the lawn, which I used to do when I was a kid and I hated it. The game changed for me when I realized on one particular moment when I mowed the lawn, I think I've told this here before, I used to mow the lawn just cussing and swearing because nobody could hear me. I would genuinely, I'd just be angry, I'd be pushing it. And eventually, one day, by the grace of God, something dawned on me. And the thought was this I am mowing my lawn 
this is my dad's. This is going to be mine. This is our kingdom. This is our little world that God has called us to govern. And what, what Paul is saying here is the new reality is one where the Spirit of God draws us in with joy. And if you've experienced Christianity or religion as a life suck, it just drains every bit of life out of you. Oh, my goodness. Then you're with me. My hand's up. I've experienced that. If that's what you've experienced, you've not experienced the the new reality that Paul's talking about, where he's saying there's a new covenant, there's a new way. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is not the crushing weight, the burdens that we live by every day, where we have to walk around with heavy weights just to prove that we're sufficient. We don't need these. If they come, they're only trophies to the kindness of God and what God has given us anyway. So, moving swiftly along, how does Paul live in this? We ask the question, what is it that boosts your confidence? When you walk out your door in the morning, are you confident because of your financial situation? Man, if I get fired today, that's okay. I've got a a good year's worth of savings. Are you confident because of your skill set that God has given you? Well, you know what? That can be taken away in an instant. Are you confident because of the company you work for, the woman you married, the husband that serves and loves and cares for you? That's awesome. Those are good things. But is that the source of your confidence because your spouse can drop dead today? Stranger things have happened. And Paul is drawing us, saying, don't have confidence in these things. Have confidence. Have your adequacy found only in the Spirit of God indwelling us. Because God's ways are eternal and cannot be taken away. And so as we go through this, we need to empty ourselves, actually, physically empty ourselves of the things that we find confidence in. Which is why tithing is such a gift to us. And if you've, if you've ever heard tithing preached or taught as this kind of like life-draining thing, oh, yeah, I've got to give money to the church, you've completely missed it. Please don't give money. It is saying, God, I empty myself of that which I, I rely on. I worship you because I obey you and I trust that your ways are better than mine and so I lay down these things in my life for the sake of trusting in you. Fasting. Oh, goodness me, that's the worst thing I could ever do. I hate fasting. Because when I have to stop eating, I remind myself how much I need it. And that need is supposed to, sometimes I'm so miserable that it never does, it's supposed to switch over to, oh, God, I need you more than food today. I am desperately in need of your spirit upon me. So we have these practices that remind us, these emptying practices. And so how I relate to you is really important because what I do is that which I've gotten, my achievements, my honor roll achievements when I got my post-grad degree in church. Don't laugh at me. That I rely on, that I trust in, that I remember. I need to empty myself And get rid of it and say, no, 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 no. This is not my source of strength when I'm called to shepherd people, to care for them, to love them. And I take that off and I say, please don't call me pastor. I I don't want a title to be my letter of empowerment. 
by the Spirit of God, we are equal. You can call me pastor, but then I'm going to call you by whatever you do. That's okay. It is a painful thing to empty ourselves of the very things we rely on. Three examples and I'm done. The first one, the rich young, young ruler. Jesus tells a story, or Jesus has this encounter with a rich young man that comes to him. And uh, he says this, I'm gonna, let me go through it quickly. And behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What is his question? Am I good enough? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one that is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus rattled off these commandments. And he says, all these I have kept. What's he doing? Here's my letter. Here's my letter of approval. And then Jesus says this, and it crushes him. Because he's living in the old way. Jesus says this. If you would be perfect, same word. If you would be fitting, if you would be adequate, if you would be competent to do what you are asking for, which is eternal life, go and sell everything that you possess and give it to the poor. What did Jesus ask him to do? To get rid of the very thing he leans on for his sufficiency. Because in those days, having money was a sign of the favor and the blessing of God. And he asked him to get rid of his reputation and his finances and to trust Jesus. And this was a burden too much for him to bear. He did not understand the freedom that comes on the other side of letting go of these crutches that we have to maintain so desperately. And so this is what that story says. It says, If you want to be sufficient in the new kingdom, get rid of your sufficiency in the old. That which you still lean on day after day. Practice things and and ways in which we can get rid of it. Jim Elliott's quote that is so famous. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And yet we hold on to these things that we trust in so much. I do. The next one, Paul in Philippians 3, he says this, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, which is like the highest of the high. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. What's he doing? just painting his credentials. This is my CV. This is what I could trust in. But then the very next line says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And he models to the people, all these things that you think is so good in me, I consider them liabilities compared to what Christ has called us to. And so what he's saying is that what I have leaned on, what I have trusted in, I actually now see as a liability because it robs me from trusting in God and in the spirit of God. Last example, Jesus himself in, one, in Philippians 2 says this, in your relationships, speaking to the church with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ, now they're going to paint a picture of Jesus and what he did. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took this downward road of humility instead of the upward road of conquering that everybody wanted him to take. So Jesus himself says, do not trust in these things. I did not even trust in them. And then loss, pain, suffering, emptying, hardships, they're all not reduced to failures, but they become steps towards the freedom of living in a kingdom that is unshakable, Hebrews says. Hebrews paints the picture of the new kingdom and it says this, it says basically, Anything that can happen to you, you can lose everything you trust in and the kingdom that you stand in cannot be shaken because it is not dependent upon the things that you depend upon. Some of us, me at times, I live my life feeling like the ground underneath me is perpetually shaking. Why? Because I'm trusting in the wrong things and Paul calls us towards new things. So here's three possible Applications outside of what God may have spoken to you already. One, perhaps like Paul, you are under attack. Paul's reputation was under attack from these other people. His reputation was being broken down. Maybe everything that you've relied on is under attack. Your ability to control, your ability to, to know what's happening, your ability to love, to care, to serve, to be enough is under attack And what you've done is you've focused upon the loss, the suffering, the pain, and you've thought that it is loss instead of realizing that God wants to use these things in our lives to turn it for the good, to turn us into those who are willing to lose what we cannot keep to gain that which we cannot lose. Perhaps secondly, you find yourself in a a cycle of self-commendation before God. You work so hard at your faith, at your religion, that you trust in those things before God to feel righteous, to feel good enough. And God says, those things mean nothing to me. Jesus was good enough. He sufficiently did on the cross what you are trying to do. You cannot earn my love. You can only receive it. Maybe this morning you're longing, longing, desperately longing just to receive the love of Christ unconditionally because it is there for you to receive instead of working for it, earning it, striving so hard for it. Or perhaps you struggle to trust God in this new kingdom reality and you keep wanting to take control. Jesus and Paul offers a new reality And he calls us to live in a new way. So in a moment, we're going to take communion. The musicians are going to come up now, just start playing a little bit. While we get a time to just think and ponder upon those things that we truly trust in, those things that we carry around with us that eventually become just these these burdens that we have to keep up. And God is inviting you this morning by coming and remembering what Jesus has done 
to just lay down the heavy burdens that you feel like you are managing and controlling. And he wants to ask you to come into a new reality, to, to be drawn into the freedom that he has paid already for us on the cross. Take a few moments of silence, reflect on that, and then I'll pray for us before we take communion.